<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Recording live at the Ramos Creek Film Festival in Opdal, Norway, I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And because we're in Norway, producer Joe Russo is not available to be with us here asking questions, but in his place, it's Postmortem, because we have Morten Hergensen asking questions for you on producer Joe's behalf. So Morton, thank you so much for sitting in with us. And let's ask me anything. Yeah, we are going to do. Thank you. The first question is, of course, about Norway, uh, Uh-oh. which I believe you know a lot. So Sietil uh, Korulus asks, have you seen any Norwegian horror movies? And if so, what's your favorite? Well, I just saw one last night called There's Something in the Barn, which is a real barn burner of a, a uh, Christmas time horror movie, a Norwegian, although it's, I guess it's an American co-production because it's a Sony film, but the people who made it are Norwegian. The cast is American, but it's a really good time. It's sort of a Gremlins type movie. It's a, a crossover. It's it's not really a, a hard R-rated horror movie, but it's a ton of fun, especially for the 12-year-old in each of us. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think maybe there are some troll movies. Well, Troll Hunter <laughs> is a masterpiece. And Andre Overdahl has been on the podcast, and we've become friends, and I, I love his work, and his uh, Autopsy of Jane Doe is spectacular, though it's not a Norwegian film. But he's Norwegian, so it counts. But I think he's just an incredibly talented guy, and uh, I'm excited to go visit the locations tomorrow. So um, to be in Opdal, to be where Troll Hunter was shot, is very exciting for me. So has everyone here been to the Troll Hunter locations? They nod politely. This is this is a podcast we need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> You're yes! almost there right now. Just a few kilometers from here. Just steps away. Yeah. yeah. Well, um now we're going to ask a question from not a Norwegian movie, but I know this is a thing you have uh, talked about earlier. But uh-huh. it's an interesting question. Uh, it doesn't have a name, uh, the question, but in your opinion, who really directed Poltergeist? Ah, okay. I was on the set. I was doing publicity for Poltergeist. And if ever there were a collaboration between producer and director, it was with Spielberg and Toby Hooper. Um, Spielberg wrote the shooting draft of the script after the Michael Grace and Mark Victor script that was the original screenplay. And so he was an active producer. He was on the set every day. Sometimes he would give 
his input and recommendations to Toby, but Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby was deeply involved in the pre-production, was on the set full time. Stephen was a very strong producer and a great producer, and the movie is obviously a combination of Spielberg and Hooper, but it was truly directed by Toby Hooper with input from a very strong producer named Steven Spielberg. So I hope that puts it to rest. Toby is a great filmmaker and deserves credit for making a classic movie, as does Steven Spielberg. And that collaboration was magic, as you can tell by the sequels and remakes that followed that did not involve either of those gentlemen. Thank you. Okay, now we are, um, you, you, you told you on the uh, um, questions mostly about movies, and there are movie questions actually. Oh good. And movies you've made. Oh, um, so far. <laughs> did, this is from Tommy. Uh, did Anthony Perkins ever talk about a potential Psycho 5? And the uh, next uh, question, and did you, you have any sequel ideas for the fourth one? Um, well, the fourth one that we did was written by Joe Stefano, who wrote the original Psycho screenplay based on the book by Robert Block. Um, Tony Perkins passed away not long after we made Psycho 4, and there was really no plan ever discussed about a Psycho 5, but he um, was ill with, uh, with HIV, and it did kill him in 1992, not long after, well, Psycho 4 came out in 1990, but he became ill after that, and so that was the next to the last movie that he made. And I, here we have... Um, back in the mailbox. Back in the mailbox. And we have uh, actually a drawing here. Uh -huh. Aha. Oh, I wonder podcast. what this one's going to be yeah. about. <laughs> it's a terrific drawing, a cartoon of a critter. A crite, I should say. Yeah. And uh, last night we had a fantastic screening of uh, Critters 2 here at the Ramosik. And, and more people were in that audience than ever saw it in its initial release. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, Cass is the name of the person who has the question. Do you have a favorite memory from a horror? It's actually not about the critters. Oh, well. It was a nice drawing. Do you have a favorite memory from horror community events, such as festivals like this one? Well, this is my current fav favorite festival right now, where I am. But what's great about all of the genre festivals is how it's just hundreds of outsiders being bonded together by their passion for the genre, by their love of dark things, by, by the, the excitement that people get from reading a scary story or watching a scary movie or being in touch, playing tag with their fears by, and gathering together because most of us, and I'm speaking in great generalizations, but uh, speaking from my own experience, I was very much an outsider as a kid. I was not popular. I was not part of a community. Um, and 
my love of the horror genre felt very personal to me because it was about fears that that I had and assumed that they were universal. And I was definitely the odd kid. I was not the class president. I was not popular. Um, and, uh, and I think so many people are drawn to the genre who do feel like they are outsiders. And this is something that brings outsiders together and bonds us in a way that we don't have uh, before we reach this stage. You know, you discover an obscure horror movie on television late one night, and nobody else knows about it but you. And, and it's something that you come to a festival like this, and you share it, and they, oh yeah, I know that one, and did you see the sequel? And, you know, it can be something, some Lithuanian horror movie that nobody else has ever seen. And suddenly there's a community that's formed among people who have not had that, the beauty of friendship that is provided by a common passion like this. And horror fans everywhere. So I'm speaking generally rather than specifically in answer to that question because it is such an important part of this community. Horror fans love to own their movies. They want to feel they belong to them. They feel a personal attachment in ways that fans of other genres don't. You know, people don't collect 4K versions of Westerns. People don't collect 4K versions of their favorite romantic comedies. But those are the ones that are keeping physical media alive, are the 4Ks and Blu-rays from the horror genre. Because we want to own them. We want to watch them repeatedly. We want to feel like they belong to us and we belong to them. Thank you. And the, and the and question for me, are you a collector on the physical media, on the film? I'm not a collector, but I have plenty of it. But I, I do watch a lot of streaming things. And there's so much stuff out there that the commitment of buying something means I'm going to watch it more than once. So I, the things that are really important to me, I will buy them. And I do love 4K and the opportunity to see films like weird-ass weird Italian horror movies from the 70s that you can only get on physical media that don't stream anywhere. And I, I do love collecting, you know, Dario Argento films or, or films that are not easily available on Prime or Netflix or all the obvious places. They make all the mainstream choices. And my favorite things are more weird shit. And I have the microphone, so I want to ask you a question regarding the festival. Yes. Because you have festivals like this that is for, uh, for the audience, not for the business. Is there a difference between uh, more business-oriented uh, festivals and uh, uh, genre fans festivals? Well, you know, I, I've never been to Cannes. Uh, I don't go to the American film market. The, the business festivals don't interest, interest me that much. Those are all about selling to distributors and, uh, and streamers and things like that. What I love is going to where the viewers, where the fans themselves gather, because the film programs are much more interesting. You know, it's not all the mainstream stuff. It's not about what they're selling. But... You know, here you had a 30-year-old Norwegian horror film that you screened today that nobody had seen or heard of but had a really big turnout. You know, that's an important thing, you know. And one of the things that I get out of going to festivals around the world is I'm exposed to stories told by different cultures, 
to see horror movies about trolls that I would not otherwise see uh, somewhere in California, for example. But, um, yeah, I, I, I just am not interested in the business side of it, and maybe that's a problem. But, but for me, uh, I, I am just like everybody else here. I'm one of the outsiders who's drawn to a genre that feels personal to me, and, and I'm here as a fan as much as a, a creator. Okay, now we actually are going to the critters. Uh, okay. um, Let's go back 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk a little about... Uh, uh, first, there's no name on the question, but we uh, take it... What uh, are you ashamed of? <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little about uh, the town you filmed Critters 2 in? Well, it's not real. We built it. Grover's Bend basically was a firing range, uh, a practice range for the police, the sheriff's department in Los Angeles County. It's about 25 miles north of Los Angeles. And um, we built buildings over these uh, concrete bunkers where there were thousands of, of gun shells all over the ground everywhere when we started. But Grover's Bend, I know the last thing it says in the movie is the producers wish to thank the people of Grover's Bend without whose help this film would not have been possible. Well, they're imaginary. There is no town there. And we built it, even though it was a very low-budget film, uh, we managed to, Philip Dean For, uh, Foster? Um, no, that's, Philip Dean Foreman was our production designer. And he designed and built that that town beautifully. and enough so that the person who wrote your question, who won't identify him or herself, um, thought that it was a real place. You know, it's, it, it was meant to be small town America. And as I said, when I introduced the movie last night, one of my favorite themes is Norman Rockwell goes to hell. And we wanted a really great, homey, Midwestern Norman Rockwell feel to a place that we would fuck up. Well, you told us just now that uh, the town doesn't exist, but uh, f f uh, Film Magazine, that's uh, the movie magazine, that's uh, a Norwegian um, uh, website uh, reviewing films and have a podcast. Uh, they know if uh, they want to know if the critters, critters really exist. Well, well, yeah, of course they do. Ask the Kyoto Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have one trapped in my uh, office studio where I normally do the podcast, overlooking everyone. I mean, if you don't believe they're real, then they're not. And what a terribly shallow, empty life you must lead. We have a lot of questions, actually, here. We, um, do you uh, believe in Santa Claus? Of course. <laughs> I'm, I live on the farm. <laughs> there's something in the barn. Yeah, there's something in the barn. And every Christmas I put uh, porridge in the, in the barn. So. <laughs> um, the barn elves. <laughs> the barn elves. Here's Shell. Uh, who would be your dream cameo for Lee to morph into in Critters 2? <laughs> well, we almost did it with Freddy Krueger. 
Um, but then it becomes a Freddy movie. And it was, we never planned for it to actually happen. But uh, um, to morph into, well, probably somebody dead. Wouldn't it be great to have a critter morph into Alfred Hitchcock? That might be interesting. <laughs> we are going to talk about um, The Shining. I saw that movie when it first came out. Yeah. <laughs> But we are going to talk about your The Shining. Oh. Uh, but uh, good. Uh, the letter F is the name of the person behind the question. Uh, do you know if Stanley Kubrick ever saw your version of The Shining? If so, what did he think? I would bet that he never saw it. Um, Kubrick, you know, King was not a fan of the Kubrick film. And it's why we made a miniseries version of The Shining. And King himself wrote the screenplay. And he was not very private about his, his feelings about the Kubrick film. So other than Stanley getting paid $1.5 million for the rights for us to do the miniseries, I think he had good feelings about the paycheck. But I would guess more than anything that he never bothered to see it. It's a big commitment. It's four and a half hours. So <laughs> it's a three-part miniseries. Okay, now we, uh, we have a question, uh, a technical question. Okay. Uh, kind regards a sound geek. <laughs> Hi, how do you approach sound or sound design in your work, pre- or post-production? It's really important, especially in the horror genre, people don't realize how much of the sound is created in post-production. And especially since I started making movies was kind of the beginning, um, not the beginning, but where surround sound became the norm. It started with Star Wars in 1977, and I got my start in the mid-'80s where everybody was mixing in surround stereo. And that was really important because you create an atmosphere and most people don't realize that most sounds that you hear in a movie, somebody putting down a glass <laughs> or spilling one, <laughs> um, sound effect. is a sound effect because the microphones are focused on getting the voices and, and the dialogue. And so a Foley artist, they call it a Foley artist named after the guy who invented the process, you put in your post-production sound studio, you have different floors, you have concrete, you have gravel, you have grass, and you record people walking on those different surfaces as they watch the film and take steps in sync with the actors. You have a microphone right next to a table where you set down the glass or pick up a glass. So you create all of the sound other than the general dialogue, which is, but even that gets replaced sometimes if there's heavy traffic and the like. But that's not the creative use of sound. The creative use of sound and sound design is creating sound effects that not only are real but are believable even if they're fantastical. And in my philosophy, I like the entire sound stage to be alive. So a lot of sound is just from the front two channels and the center channel. But I always like to feel that there's something behind you as well. Not everybody has a surround sound system in their home, but all movie theaters do. And to be able to hear you you just feel an atmosphere and you lay in a surround atmosphere and the shining is a particular example of 
dread, creating dread by sound. You can just show an empty restaurant or dining hall in a, in a hotel and the camera is low on the ground and slowly moving and you hear and feel a rumble. You don't necessarily hear it specifically, but you feel it innately and it creates a sense of unease and dread and of something happening. And sound effects, you know, the exaggerated sound effects, the cat scare, the obvious stuff where you have a cut of something, a sudden close up and, and see, it made you jump. But it's a cheap effect, but it's a very important effect in, in working in the horror genre. But just weaving an atmosphere is something I find incredibly important, and it's something we're aware of when we're in production, but in particular uh, in post-production when you're doing a final mix. The score has a lot to do with it, and you work with the composer and the sound designer so that all of it becomes a web of one. People aren't working away from each other, but together with each other to create a fabric that is fulsome and and creates an effect and a, an emotional state that goes beyond just what the score and the action is taking care of it's it's filling the the sound stage with activity whether you notice it or not you feel it thanks uh, should you hear about uh, is there any people in the audience that uh, have a question oh we do okay yeah. Yes, um, I'm kind of a novelty question because I noticed that you have your own little Hitchcock moment in Critters 2. You told me at the elevator at the hotel that you did the voices for at least one of the Critters. How did you approach be doing a Kreitz? Like this? Cheeseburger! <laughs> yeah, I, I like to do, be in on the loop group. Um, a loop group is a group of actors who put in the voices that aren't there when you're actually recording. Or if you have, you can't have extras speak or you have to pay them extra. So when you've got a lot of background, um, but there are lines that you need to put in, you have a group of actors, maybe six to eight to ten actors, who will provide all of the background voices throughout the movie. And when you're doing the Critters, we had, um, we had a couple of cartoon voice experts doing that. And I actually got my Screen Actors Guild card doing cartoon voices. I did a singing Mexican frog for the Pink Panther cartoon <laughs> and things like that. But So I, I really enjoyed being a little furry monster with giant teeth. <laughs> You know, I was very moved by this um, riding the bullet-inspired dance show that I was put on yesterday. Um, me too. It pretty close to brought me to tears. Yeah. yeah so my question is, is just like how you felt during this uh, Ramoskrieg uh, surprise. It was a total surprise for the audience who wasn't there. Um, a group of young dancers choreographed and performed a beautiful dance to some of the songs from Riding the Bullet, particularly Time of the Season by the Zombies, which is the opening credits. And I was so moved. I really, it was a very emotional experience for me because that movie, as I've explained many times, is really personal to me. And that dance was like, holy shit. It, it was so moving and the stage was filled and they were so committed to it and it was a really emotional moment and it is right now just talking about it thanks
Hello. Um, uh, sometimes you hear about uh, directors' uh, passion projects that never uh, came to fruition. Yeah. Uh, like John Carpenter talked about wanting to do a Creature from the Black Lagoon movie that he was developing in the 90s, I think. Yeah, and John Landis was doing it in the 80s and never got it off the ground. Right. Yeah. Do you have any of these kind of projects that you wanted to do but couldn't for some other reason? I still do, yeah. I mean... I wrote a, uh, a kind of a Hollywood desert noir novel called Salome, and it's something I've always wanted to turn into a movie. Um, you know, when you have some success in the horror genre, sometimes that becomes your jail. Now, I love this jail. Um, I love this genre, and I respect this genre. I would love to be able to work outside of it as well, and there are fewer opportunities for me to do that. But that's something that one day I hope I will make it. And another script that I originally wrote like 30 years ago that we almost sold to Steven Spielberg when I was doing Amazing Stories with him. Um, I rewrote it recently, and uh, it's my favorite script I ever wrote, and it never got made. And it has now been optioned by a production company that is, as soon as all of these strikes are over, we will be pursuing that. So that's that's a passion project. There, there are two original scripts that I wrote, or one is a book and one is a script, that I, I would love to do, and uh, I'm not giving up hope yet. Um, I was going to ask what he asked, so I <laughs> guess I'll ask something else instead. Um, do you have any of your old projects that if you had sort of a big budget and more creative freedom, kind of unlimited creative freedom that you would like to revisit or remake or something? I I never want to revisit something I've already done. I, I, I want to be like the shark that keeps swimming before it dies. You know, um, once I'm finished with something, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into making a movie or a television show or writing a book. Um, and doing it one time through, I try and do my best at that. And, and you know, whether it's Critters 2, which costs $4 million, or The Stand, which costs $27 million, there's never enough money or time. Um, and going back to do it over, what if I fucked it up the second time? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I would rather be moving forward and evolving than going back in time and trying to improve on something I've already spent a year of my life doing. Anybody else? We have one up front, Sylvie. Edit moment. Yes, um, it's a f kind of a follow-up question to what you said about Riding Bullet, because Riding Bullet is... Uh, the section of songs there is excellent, uh, which Thank I think you. is actually the best thing about the movie here, seriously, because it's kind of like, it's very Tarantino-like, the way you chose the music there. Can you explain a bit more about the process? How do you did how did you choose the songs that you did for uh, Red and Bullet? Because uh, when I saw your reaction, it seemed pretty per the, the, the songs that you chose seemed pretty personal. Well, the story that Stephen King wrote and published on the internet um, was 30 pages long. And it was set in 1999 when he wrote it, which was the year of his accident. So I wanted to make it really personal because it's about a choice 
a life and death choice that a young man makes. And I felt that the world had a life and death choice to make around 1969, which is the year I graduated high school. Um, and there was so much room because it was such a short story that I had plenty of room to turn it into something that was really personal for me. So that year I graduated high school was a great year for music, you know, and the songs that we got. This was right before music got really expensive to license because nobody buys records or CDs anymore. Musicians don't make money like they used to, so they make more money by licensing to films and television. But we were lucky enough at that time that we had a, a license fee that was standard for each of the songs that we licensed then. And almost everything I wrote into the script, we were able to get time of the season, um, you know, uh, get together by the young bloods. I really wanted to end it with uh, John Lennon and the Plastic Ono band doing Instant Karma, because the last line of the movie is, nobody lives forever, but we all shine on. And the chorus of that is, we all shine on, like the moon and the stars and the sun. Yoko saw the movie and liked it and said yes. And uh, they wanted like four times as much as all of the other songs. <laughs> and this was a very low budget movie. So we weren't able to do it, but I, I'm really happy with the Young Blood song that we got. But all of those songs come from a time of discovery for me, where I was deeply into loving music. And I was a music journalist at that time. When I was a teenager, I interviewed Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and a lot of other great dead people. Um, <laughs> but music was a very important thing to me, especially pop music at that time. And to be able to do a personal song and bring songs into it from my youth, it deepened it for me. You have done several Stephen King movies, or that's true. Movies. Yes, several. <laughs> and and so tell us a little bit about your working relationship with with King. It's it's really great. Um, you know, I've done so many projects with King, and I am so grateful for everyone because he's an incredibly generous and talented human being, and a really good friend. Um, it's. People think because I've worked with him so much that I'm his bitch, <laughs> that I'll do his bidding. But I will tell you, he has never once, you know, he hasn't been on the set of every production that we've done based on his work. But he was very involved in the stand. Uh, he was there for at least half of the time off and on and on The Shining even more so. Um, he knows the difference between films and books. Uh, and he was always encouraging. There was never a moment where he told me how I, he thought I should direct something or shoot something or give advice to an actor or a crew member. Um, he's there as a cheerleader. And King is one of the most playful. When he's on the set of a movie, it's like he's in a toy box and just a set of new trains for Christmas. You know, He's such a great cheerleader. And... We've developed uh, a trust between one another because we've worked together so well. Sleepwalkers was the first time we worked together. It was a very successful movie in its time. But then the second thing we did together was The Stand, which became the highest rated miniseries in history to this day. So he really, we, well, I always trusted him, but he learned to trust me. And so we haven't worked together in a while, 
hopefully there's a project that we've got in the works that will see the light of day soon. But uh, I could not ask for a better, more generous and an enthusiastic cheerleader as a as a partner. And he's just a damn good guy. Yeah. One over here. Uh, I was uh, thinking that uh, the horror genre is in many ways a carnivore uh, genre with all the blood and guts and uh, Animals killing people, cannibals eating each other. <laughs> uh, but I've come to realize, listening to your podcast, that many of the creators are vegans or vegetarians. And <laughs> including me. Yeah. Including you. So I was thinking, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think a lot of the genre creators, as well as the fans, are a lot, even though they are inured to fake violence and splatter and all of that stuff, I think a lot of them are more internal looking than maybe the mainstream people are because of their um, outsiderness. Uh, and I think there's a sensitivity to it. Um, you know, I, I did not become a vegan because uh, of health reasons. I became a vegan because I would see the same expression on a cow's face that I saw on my dog's face. And I go, do we really have to chop that up and eat it? And uh, you know, it's so much more fun to see a human eviscerated on the screen than an animal, even if it's fake. It's a, well, in Spain, they're all real when they kill animals in movies. But, but um, you know, it's, it's play pretend when you're killing people. Uh, and when it's animals, it's, it's real. And I just think there's a sensitivity, first of all, of creative people anyway, writers, painters, musicians, filmmakers, storytellers, the whole point of your art is to convey, to communicate with an audience and to convey storytelling or feelings or, or something that has a meaning to you. And I think people who create are sensitive people and, and I'm not a proselytizing vegan, I'm not telling everybody they should do it, but it's the reason I do and why so many of the people within the genre uh, feel that way. So all of you are not, you're going to give up your mutton tonight, right? Uh, what were your initial thoughts when uh, you were going to make an, uh, a new adaptation of, uh, of The Shining? Were you in any kind of uh, awe regarding Kubrick's film? Well, it, it was an interesting situation because it was well known that King never really cared much for what Kubrick did with his adaptation and what really it, it really came down to earth first of all I never felt like I was competing with Stanley Kubrick I was doing the King version of The Shining after we'd had great success with The Stand but then I started seeing things online and all these Kubrick fans go the guy who did Critters 2 is doing The Shining it's gonna be a piece of shit and you know, but what really brought it home was I called Gary Sinise to see if he would be interested in playing Jack Torrance after he had done such a great job as Stu Redman in The Stand. And he said, you know, Mick, I'd be a little hesitant to step into Mr. Nicholson's shoes. And I was very naive about it and realized the first line of any review is so-and-so might be good, but he's no Jack Nicholson. You know, but to me the whole arc of The Shining 
in the Kubrick film, it's got an entirely different point of view. Jack starts crazy and becomes crazier. In King's book and in the miniseries for which King wrote the screenplay, um, Jack starts as a guy who is flawed, who's hurt his, his tender young child because of being in a jealous, or not a jealous rage, but a drunken rage. He's been drinking, he breaks his little boy's arm, and he's repentant about the guilt he feels over that. And it's those inner demons, as well as the ghosts in the hotel, that haunt Jack and drive him crazy. So it's all about the descent into madness that didn't exist in the Kubrick adaptation. So they, you know, I, I think Kubrick's film is a great Kubrick film and not a great King adaptation. But let them stand apart. You know, it's great filmmaking. You know, nobody is talking about Mick Garris in the same sense that they talk about Stanley Kubrick, and I'm okay with that. I'd better be. But, um, but they were two entirely different points of view. And one way that I always uh, uh, sum it up is Kubrick is a very cold storyteller and very clinical and, and very technical. And, you know, it's a lot about the filmmaking itself. And King is a very warm storyteller. It's very emotional. And so I think that they did entirely different versions of the same basic story. Uh, yes, here we go. Uh, okay. Um, are you on strike right now? or um, The Screen Actors Guild part of me is on strike, which doesn't make any difference because I haven't acted anything in a long time. But uh, the Writers Guild part of me, we settled, so we're not on strike. And the directors did not go out on strike. They never have in their history. No. Chicken chits. <laughs> <laughs> So you talked a little bit about like the 4K medium. Since Arrow Video did like the Psycho box set recently, are there any movies of yours that are in production for the format? I know you can't like directly talk about it, but can you like confirm? Well, I can tell you that there aren't any planned for 4K that I know of. I, I wish that Psycho 4, I didn't even know that that w was in 4K, but I'd, I'd heard the box set was coming, but they haven't sent me one yet. Um, but I'm looking forward to that because 4K is fantastic if it's well mastered. You know, I, I would love that. But there's a lot of my stuff that's never even come out on Blu-ray. The Shining miniseries is only available uh, on uh, a DVD. So uh, I would love to see The Shining, which was shot in 35 millimeter and just would be ideal on Blu-ray to go back to the, the uh, negative and reprocess it. But it's an expensive process and people don't buy physical media anymore, especially from a major studio. That's Warner Brothers, and it's from 1997, a TV miniseries. Forget it. They don't stand a chance of making millions of dollars off of it. Yeah. Uh, one question about uh, Amazing Stories, because huh. you were also doing uh, Batteries Not Included, and was that supposed to be a part of uh, just a short, short story in Amazing Stories? Actually, you're right. Um, Batteries Not Included was originally, in the first season, Steven Spielberg wrote all 22 of the storylines. Now, they could have been a couple pages long or even a, a, a paragraph. 
and in the case of, of Batteries Not Included, his original title was Grammy and Gramps and Company. And it was, it was an episode, it was very small, and he thought, you know, this would be something that could make a great feature, and decided to do that. And at that time, it was my first job as a screenwriter was writing for Stephen, and I was story editor on the show, so I was there full time. And he offered me my choice of either doing that as a feature or one called Ghost Kid. And Ghost Kid became Ghost Dad with Bill Cosby. And not very well remembered. And I think I made the right choice. <laughs> so, but I did give them one idea that I don't think they used. I never saw Ghost Dad. But I thought if Ghost Kid, the only way he could be seen would be to put on makeup. So the ghost kid would walk through a wall and it would leave like a harlequin face on the wall behind it. But a great idea that nobody ever used that I'll save for another time. Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you enjoy watching in your spare time other than perhaps horror? Uh, you know, I, I love horror and I love adult horror. Um, you know, things that are really... You know, I, I'm not a, a big slasher movie fan uh, or a franchise fan. Once you get up to number five, six, seven, eight, I'm usually long gone. But I love noir. I love modern noir movies. And I love Nordic noir as well, um, reading it and watching it. Um, but uh, I, I, I love anarchic comedies, you know, not your typical studio comedies, but things that are a little more unconventional and independent. Um, but I like all kinds of films. Uh, you know, they're war movies, not so much, although I produced a movie called Unbroken that was about World War II, but that was because... Has anybody seen that movie? Angelina Jolie directed it? Okay, one person. Well, it's a true story. It's about my father-in-law who was uh, in... World War II, he was shot down out of a of their bomber. Three men survived on a life raft for 47 days before being picked up by the Japanese and put into a, a prisoner of war camp for two and a half years until the war ended. It's a really good movie. It's not a horror movie, but it's more intense than most of my horror movies. And Angelina Jolie directed it and did a great job. But... but um, that's a horror movie I'd watch, <laughs> or a war movie I'd watch that is also a horror movie. But my tastes are definitely not restricted to the horror genre. I, I really just love anything that's fresh and original and, and conveys an original voice, filmmaking voice. Well. <clears throat> well, I think that kind of wraps us up. But I have one more question, oh, if it's okay. that okay. Um, it's a what's the it's a question from Arne. What's the funniest onset story that you have? These are always disappointing <laughs> because when you ask about <coughs> excuse me when you ask about funny stories, there's so much hard work that goes on. A short day is twelve hours, and it's really hard to think funny. <laughs> um, so let me. We may need to do some editing or entirely this question because when I think about the stuff I've done over the last 30 years, not a lot of it makes me laugh anymore. 
I'm sure there's a lot of it, and it's a lot of fun to make movies, and you know, being surrounded by, you know, up up to a couple of hundred creative people, crew and cast and uh, artisans and all, it's always a great time. Well, I could tell you one one story. Yeah, okay. It had us laughing for a long time. We were in a very close set, and there were uh, a handful of crew people in a very enclosed set, and there was a terrible smell. And the assistant cameraman said, somebody forgot to take a courtesy walk. <laughs> and for some reason, well, I'll tell you, it was on The Shining. And we were inside the freezer where it's very claustrophobic, and I'm claustrophobic anyway. And the, the air was very thin. The oxygen was giving out, and we're locked inside with Jack Torrance and a crew. And the smell was horrendous. And everybody got giddy, and we could not stop laughing. And the term courtesy walk became required use on every set after that. You know, would you please take a courtesy walk? Anyway, so that's the funniest thing I can remember because during that whole scene, we had trouble finishing it because everybody was in tears. May not sound so funny right now and probably certainly not on a podcast and maybe not the best way to go out of an episode, but let's all take a courtesy walk. <laughs> I want to thank everybody here, and I want to thank everybody on the staff for Ramos Creek for a really wonderful, generous time. I'm having the best time here in Norway. And Morton, thank you so much for filling in for producer Joe and turning it into post-Morton with Mick Garris. And uh, thank you so much, and I look forward to meeting each and every one of you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.